2: Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives, I shake your hands with a good heart. This is the voice from Earth. It's good for all of us to be here and today will be a good day. Wake up now, relations. You are listening to First Voices Radio on Teocasin Ghost tour sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Osopus or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Osopus the lands of the munsee speaking Lenape. This is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as FirstVoicesIndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. I wanted to bring attention to what happens before a disaster, what happens to, during a disaster and after a disaster. Where is the Indigenous knowledge? Where is it on the table? And this is what this next report is about. And I'd like to thank you for being here with First Voices Radio. And so we begin this, our, our guest is Emma McNichol, out of Melbourne, Australia. And please listen in carefully, truthfully. I'd like to welcome Dr. Emma McNichol, who is a feminist philosopher and expert on Simone Beauvoir. Uh, Emma works at the Nexus of Race, Culture, and Gender Theory, examining things themes of exclusion and intersectionality in historical and contemporary feminist theory. But Emma is also a senior project coordinator for Fire to Flourish's National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Program, a project exploring Indigenous leadership in the face of natural hazards intensified by climate crisis. And I'm referring to an article about the disaster resilience and the recent floods in Australia. And as you know, Emma, there have been many floods across the world, a planet where a lot of indigenous peoples who are first in line because they live on the ground in the front line, so to speak, when it comes to natural disasters. And what I'm alluding to is that native people are seen and handle disasters very differently. And even some places, indigenous communities do not even have words for disaster as you may know. But um, I'd like to welcome you before we go on. I'd like to welcome you to First Voices Radio with Tioksen and Ghost Horse, And I'm talking with Dr. Emma McNichol. Thank you for joining us here, Emma.
3: Thanks for having me, Tioksen. And I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on Boonarong um, land um, and that um, the original, um, that sovereignty was never ceded. And I'd like to rec- um, recognize and acknowledge elders
2: past, present and emerging. Thank you so much. And I think part of understanding this is that there's a problem that's familiar to indigenous communities across the globe, and there's a not enough for me as an indigenous person. This is not. It is primarily a non-indigenous-led response when it comes to natural disasters. And the recent conference you were just that with uh, other aborigines in Australia speak to this. And and can you? Continue that thought and why there is not Indigenous responses or even at the table with Indigenous responses.
3: Yeah. Well, I'd like to draw on something that you said just a minute ago first, and that is how we perceive or how we conceive of disasters or natural hazards. And like you've said, um, the word disaster um, is not necessarily in um it doesn't mean the same thing or it might not even be a term in all of the Indigenous languages. So um, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders have been on this land that we call Australia for tens of thousands of years and they know this land and they know that there are deep and significant fluctuations. Cyclones, floods, fires are part of this landscape and they're part of its cycles and part of the rejuvenation and as we know um, Indigenous peoples on this land we call Australia have also um, uh, been, you know, doing cultural burning um, as a cultural practice, but also as a way of caring for country, of rejuvenating that land and, you know, making an offering to the plants and the and the animals. So, yeah, I think that um, it's really important to even think about what a flood or a fire is and how we're perceiving it differently and really a, Fire, um, a hazard or a disaster, is only a disaster when we're not properly prepared for it and when there is kind of structural or cultural failures. We want to imagine a future where um, the land will present us with these perhaps challenges or these extreme variations, where the social safety net is there, that people are safe and protected and culturally recognised and culturally safe. So this is kind of one of the... um, The biggest, uh, this is really what this project is about. So our project's called the National Indigenous Disaster Resilience. And I'd like to acknowledge that my, the project lead, an Aboriginal man called Biami Williamson and a leading Indigenous researcher, he started this project. He conceived of it. His original research was the, um, was kind of, is behind it. And I joined later on. So I want to make that clear that I myself am not an Indigenous person and this was his project um, that I've now joined on (laughs) And this, um, and so last week we we ran um, we had a the National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Summit. Um, we are based well, our project team is based in NAM, also called Melbourne, and this summit was in Meanchan, or um, what's commonly known in, in a colonial language as uh, Brisbane. So we had two hundred and thirty Indigenous and non-Indigenous um, practitioners, um, academics, community leaders. Um, in the disaster resilience space come together. I guess what's really important is that a lot of these people, a lot of the speakers that we had, aren't even formally employed in this space. They were Indigenous people that simply roll up their sleeves and protect their own community. They know the country, they know their community, and when there are structural failures um, regarding the safety and knowledge of Indigenous peoples, they have taken the lead. They've helped each other. So we know that... Um, that there is a huge disparity in the way that um, Indigenous peoples in disaster resilience and emergency response and recovery in Australia, we know there's a huge difference in the way that they're honoured, respected and cared for versus the actual fact that Indigenous peoples in Australia tend to be rolling up their sleeves and actually leading the charge. They're not getting remunerated for it. They're not getting recognised. The local council, for example, in the case of the Birktown floods, didn't only not support the Indigenous rangers when it was happening. They themselves were slow to act, slow to respond. But then they also sort of erased the contributions and efforts of those Indigenous rangers after it occurred. It took a long time and a a fair chunk of media attention before they had to reluctantly admit, thanks, boys, you really led the charge.
2: You talked about maybe the response of governments and organizations that are responding to more urban areas maybe possibly, but indigenous communities are often isolated and more remote. They don't have um, the, the response time, so to speak, by these governments. And I'm wondering if that has anything to, to do with their being overlooked. Of course, that answer is, is uh, misunderstood, but I'm also wondering this indige- indigenous leadership and experience during disasters, because as you mentioned, they, they have persevered over thousands of years and now the weather is becoming more severe and unpredictable and and i'm hearing that you're saying that there's a coming together with 230 at this conference you were talking about and how are the indigenous responses and solutions being brought to the table so to speak emma um i guess they're not
3: being brought to the table so that's what our project's trying to do which, um, we know that it's happening. We know that there's this incredible um, Indigenous community leadership, but we know that it's kind of being ignored. And so the kind of the main goal of our project in a lot of ways is to make sure there is appropriate recognition of that incredible Indigenous leadership and to make sure that they then receive the infrastructure that they need. You know that the, the Burke Rangers said simply, while their while their community was flooding, and while the official channels didn't do anything, and the Indigenous Rangers just came out and saved everyone or saved the day, we know that they simply said, you know, if we just had a little bit more, you know, if we had a few boats, we'd had a few better cars. You know, we could have even done more. You know, so it's about recognition, some kind of material infrastructure. Um, but yeah, then there's also this this question of um, yeah, why have why have Indigenous peoples been forgotten in emergency relief and disaster management anyway? And like you've mentioned, Teokasen, there is a question of geographical location. And while, for example, a lot of um, Indigenous peoples in this land we call Australia live in urban and dense spaces such as um, Western Sydney, um, however, yes, there are a lot of um, Indigenous people who are still out on country in relatively remote places. So, yes, these... Um, there is this it is possible to um infer that emergency services are not aware of their whereabouts or that they're hard to reach you know they're kind of remote locations and we do know consistently that there are kind of forgotten um local government areas and forgotten areas that are neglected in emergency relief but i guess that's still not really a reason or appropriate excuse we need we need to have communities on the map we need to we need emergency relief to establish pre-existing relationships with these communities, so that when the moment comes, there's a dialogue that's already started. One of the biggest issues that we've heard about is that, understandably, Indigenous peoples here in Australia don't always have um, um, uh, a great trust in state authorities. We know that's very well-founded, given um, the way that the state apparatus has um, been a force of great violence against them. So then in these times of emergencies, the cops or the firemen or whatever will rock up and tell them what to do. And it's a top down approach. It's bossy, it's didactic, you know, and it doesn't go all that well. We've even heard stories where there's been questions of child custody brought into it. And that's a hugely um, sore hugely um, traumatic history of the state removing Indigenous children. So there's been these threats that we've heard in all different areas in Australia where police will say, or the local authorities will say, you know, if you don't evacuate now, we're going to remove your children. So these really um, disgusting, traditional, um, you know, colonial violent kind of threats come back up in these moments. We know understandably when there's a fire, there's a flood, everyone's stressed, okay, that's okay, okay. Um, however, we, we are encouraging non-Indigenous government agencies to establish a relationship before. There needs to be, um, you need to reach out, you need to have relationships, you need to have respect, and you need to treat people with dignity if you expect them to follow your bloody orders.
2: <laughs> you know, And I think about Indigenous voices and authority, as as article states, is one of the things I talked about or think about is that, of course we can say how do indigenous communities recover from disasters as they have been in time have meted that aid to themselves to the land and then i can see aborigines sitting on the hill and watching the the city get flooded down below and yet there there is not uh, in a sense that in, indigenous traditional knowledge is not applied to why build down on the on a floodplain, but also it's sort of a matter of some debate why Indigenous knowledge is still, again, debatable.
3: Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um, I think there's, there's also a really um, alarming trend in non-Indigenous um, kind of political leadership in Australia where they start saying basically, oh, hang on. Why don't we? You know, because I'm I'm sure you're you're aware that Australia has been burning very badly the last few years, um, in uncontrolled and terrifying ways. We've all had immense loss of you know plants, animals, um, and and of course homes. But anyway, we've lost something like you know millions and millions of our native wildlife, and it's just tragic. Anyway, but when there's this trend where these um, politicians are saying things like one of our former prime minister, who's 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 very right-wing he'd be he'd be a member of the republican party he's a political conservative he was in the us he said um uh oh what about uh that cultural burning you know maybe we should have done some of that maybe that would have kind of saved the day so there's this sense of us europeans we've rocked up we've ruined this country we've ruined the landscape and now We're going to turn back to those people who we disrespected, whose land we disrespected, and get them to save the day. It's kind of the classic colonial move. Like, hey, guys, we've made this mess. Hey, oh, hang on. Do you know how to clear it up? So it's also a misunderstanding of what cultural burning is as primarily a cultural practice. It's not, you, you know, and it tells us a lot about this idea that we can turn to Indigenous peoples and have them and extract this knowledge, instrumentalize it, and kind of, without any regard for it as a cultural phenomenon, just kind of apply it and, you know, it's a a silver bullet. So, yeah, I think there's a real importance of um, that we need to make sure that traditional knowledge is present at every level of um, disaster resilience in Australia, but it has to be um, applied and deployed by Indigenous peoples, you know, because... My my mob, we just get it wrong, basically. We're going to be extracting it, applying it, and just kind of, you know, thinking we can just kind of pick it up and, and use it a little bit. And that's, of course, not what traditional knowledge is like or what it's about.
2: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, I'm thinking about the, you know, like when when something happens in, in the, the modern culture uh, in the US and probably in Australia and any place in Occidental Europe and in America, maybe Australia too, is that once a disaster, natural disaster happens, people you often hear it—the the motto or the the mon- mantra of "we'll be, build back, bit we, we will build back bigger, better, stronger," as if yeah. they were fi- fighting the earth or something. You see where I'm going <laughs> with that? Totally. Yeah, it's um.
3: It's really scary like the, the, the how few lessons we're learning, you know, build back better, stronger. I, I went to a panel on, um, you know, converting to green energy or whatever it was. It was about climate crisis last week. And this guy from, some senior guy from Volvo, one of these car companies talked about the need to convert all of the trucks to, um, what was it, to, you know, to electric. What he didn't take in mind or what he didn't raise was the fact that we live in this giant country, Australia, and people tend to or primarily live on the outskirts of it. He didn't never raise the question of whether we in fact need all these trucks running and whether we all should expect, you know, asparagus in May and tomatoes in December. You know, we can't expect everything that we've always got. We shouldn't be able to walk into the supermarket and get meat and fruit and veg that's out of season. Yes, it's good if uh, if trucks are converted to um, electric, but we also should stop running so many trucks <laughs> and this whole idea of, you know, we'll build back better. Well, hang on, how much do we need to build back? And if we're going to really do things better, can we do things more respectfully and thoughtfully and maybe a little bit mo- more modestly? Um, when we're talking with Indigenous peoples about their, um, their experience of fires and floods and cyclones and this um, psychology of, um, disaster um, response is really telling in terms of there's a real priority of what to protect and the colonial mindset is protect number one lives number two property and then kind of flows down from there you know country or what we call country and you know animals and plants is far down the list whereas in at least from um, some of the Aboriginal people that I've been talking with their first thing to protect is country, you know, and we, the, a disrespect to country is a disrespect to everything and everyone, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual hit, you know? Yes. And we also know that, um, you know, I met a guy from, um, uh, an Island off Mianja, which is, which is in colonial English called Stradbroke Island, but it's called Maringaba in, in, um, indigenous language. And he said that, um, there were only two houses on the island that burned down in the fires a few years back and his were one of them. You know, so there's also this, this sense that, um, not a sense, it it seems pretty likely that there's that there's a racist logic to not only protecting properties, but which properties to protect. So it's the Aboriginals guys' house that doesn't get the fire truck or in another community, we heard about, um, you know, the local school getting saved. Fair enough. The local hospital getting saved. Fair enough. But the Aboriginal cultural centre who cares about that? You know, there's this sense that there are some structures that matter and some that don't and some homes that matter and some that don't, um, which is, of course, pretty scary. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, and that's not even and that's only when we're actually talking about visible property. The really the even bigger issue is the fact that your average non-Indigenous person um, and they're, don't forget they're in a state of crisis, can't actually see. They don't know that country. They don't know in other ways, what a, what a spiritual or a cultural artefact is or looks like, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, we've got this huge kind of disjunct where we really need our emergency services and disaster relief personnel to do a deep, um, a deep dive into traditional knowledge, to really listen and engage um, and try to kind of abandon their top-down approach or re- revisit it and really learn from the cultures and the communities that they're meant to be protecting about what what that community actually wants to be protected you know what's important to them what's a value to them and you know there are there are sp- specific trees that mean everything to some communities and you know your average white non-indigenous fireman in Australia's got no idea that that's an important tree let alone you know the question of whether the you know the cultural um uh, meeting center is 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 more important than the supermarket to those people you know
2: we're speaking with Dr Emma McDickle, a senior project coordinator with the National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Project, and we'll be right back with our interview with Emma McNichol on where is the table for Indigenous peoples when it comes to natural disasters before, during, and after. And we have a few ideas, so stay tuned for us for First Voices Radio. Childish Gambino with Feels Like Summer, the 2018 single released in the genre of R&B. So it's been a while since we played that, but it really talks about, you know, no one's listening and watching the water. Has it, it being displaced? Places out in Nevada, places that think it wouldn't happen. You know, I could say much more about what I think, which I will do, the very ironic, the irony of... Earning man, the celebration out there, and people would expect me to have compassion for our fellow human being, but that can only be taken so far. But you cannot have compassion for stupidity. People were dying to get in. Now people are dying to get out. And I think it's uh, capitalistic hedonism at its best. And I really do understand. Maybe these are the times, and this is an example of the confusion that people are showing. And not paying attention to Mother Earth. They should be gathering there for Mother Earth. They should be 77,000 people gathered at Standing Rock for the Earth, for water, not for a celebration of having fun, because you can as capitalists. And keeping in mind what happened to our brothers and sisters, Kanaka Ma'aoli out in Hawaii and the response. So stay tuned for our second half of First Forces Radio. Speaking with Dr. Emma McNichol, a senior project coordinator with the National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Project, and agreeing on the knowledge that you put forward to is that the Indigenous people's knowledge is very invaluable, and and I think part of that is understanding that Indigenous knowledge comes from hard knocks, so to speak, having that yeah. experience as a collective, as a people. But yet, you know, we, you and I are referring to a language of white people, and we understand it as a behavior. Uh, and so that people make it easier for them to hear us to say white. It doesn't mean the color. We're talking about a behavior. So yeah. the be- And speaking of behavior, uh, Emma, is how do indigenous peoples, and you and I know this, but maybe the listeners here in the U.S. and other places listen to First Voices that there are early natural early warning systems. And I talk about the birds, the animals and even, you know, insects and and plants often have this communique that we don't see if we're if you're urbanized, we're not going to see this, this natural reaction to a disaster, uh, upcoming or oncoming disaster. We often they don't react. They are proactive to anything that's coming ahead or in the future, you know, earthquakes and the wind and they watch and they they live the experience where we are only saying that's nature and nature is our enemy, so to speak.
3: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think it's a really important distinction between, you know, the the fact that when we're talking about white in this conversation, we mean non-indigenous and we mean a colonial mindset. And that is a way of being... And in the emergency relief sector, the kind of early warning signs that you might get, let's not forget that these people, and through no fault of their own, there might be thousands of kilometres stationed away. So the kind of early warnings they get are a red dot on a machine or a screen or some sort of, you know. Meanwhile, Indigenous people on country have this entirely different mode of being and they're listening and they're touching and they're feeling and this engagement with, um, with country is such that they are far more intimately attuned to um, to what's happening. And those that have not been displaced through colonial structures from their ancestors might have had, might have learned ways of reading that country from from elders in their community. So, yeah, we have this profound disjunct between the way that early warning signs are visible, are read, and, yeah, and I mean, there's no comparison between, you know, um, communities that have I don't want to say have been fortunate enough, but communities that have lived or in areas for tens of thousands of years without the state removing and disrupting mm. those generations, they've passed on knowledge and they'll know what that particular bird's arrival means or what that tree means, you know. Um, and so, yeah, there's no comparison in the way in their deep knowledge of this country compared to what emergency services personnel, whether they're close or nearby might do but also the way that they would inherit that knowledge, where it's through a device or it's through a, I don't know, a siren or something. You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I also wanted to draw on the fact that you you put really beautifully, Tiokas, in this idea that this indigenous knowledge has been um, a kind of um, obtained through the school of hard knocks. You know, and this this is um, this important word that we're using resilience, and this is where. We're dealing with people that have um, have just been through so much, you know, their ancestors, their country, there's so much grief. And yet their strength and their leadership and their initiative to save their families and their communities is so incredible. So, um, yeah, there's this resilience of, you know, the fact that in many ways European colonial violence has has sought to eradicate Indigenous peoples from this land in many mm-hmm. different ways, but they're still here and they're proud and they're saying, you know, I'm, st- you know, this is mine, you know, I'll, and, and not in an appropriate, not in a way of appropriation. You know, I was having a beautiful conversation with um, two Aboriginal um, community leads last week after our conference, and they said. Um, there's a huge referendum that's about to occur in Australia where we're deciding whether to give um, uh, Aboriginal people uh, a voice, um, an official voice in the constitution, and this has this has has unleashed a huge amount of violent, um, racist rhetoric, particularly from our kind of desperate right-wing party, who's who's failing a little bit. They're you know trying to get some votes and get popularity by saying terrible things. So they're suggesting or they're claiming that if we give Indigenous peoples the right, this this special advisory group um, and and recognise that in the constitution, that they will be, um, they're being arrogated an advantage. They're getting special treatment, you know, this whole whole argument. Um, But, yeah, we know the people that I was talking with last week were saying, we don't want anything. We're not going to take anyone's house back. We're not going to take anyone's farm back. We just want everyone to respect country. No, it's time and time again. Country is grieving. I don't know what things are like in the US, but the things I've said on the news are pretty bad too. Um, I remember even, you know, Kim Kardashian, her house nearly burnt down. But I think she got to commission her own um, fire engine, didn't she? Her and Kanye got to protect their house in a special way. But we've got, we've got this, the elders that I'm speaking to keep telling us, country's grieving. We're in a state, we've treated it too badly for too long and it's hurting. And... We need healing processes that will honor that country, but also that will recognize um every engagement with indigenous people and with communities that is meant to be part of emergency preparedness needs to prioritize healing. We can't you can't rock up as a white copper, bang on the door and say, All right, there might be a fire later this summer. You know, you better listen to me when it happens. <laughs> it has to yeah. be and there- not even doing that at the moment but if they were we have to promote healing of country and intergenerational and interpersonal healing at every juncture we need to prioritize dignity and self-determination and that copper if they rock up on that doorstep needs to say something like how are you how can i help you know it needs to be questions and it needs to be um it needs to prioritize self-determination and dignity we know also that um a bit, I've been doing some statistical analysis recently and we know that Indigenous peoples are living in um, LGAs that are far more likely to be frequently experiencing extremely severe natural hazards. So they're in these, um, they tend to be living not, all, not, not overwhelmingly, but in LGAs that experience frequent and severe hazards, they have two, three or four times the Indigenous population that the rest of this land called Australia has. So there's this incredible um, vulnerability um, in terms of where they're living so yeah i can't remember where i
2: was going with that (laughs) no no that's good i thank you for that um and thank you for making this uh, interview a little easier for me to you know come up with questions and spur the moment and i i'm really commending you on um this recognizing the growing recognition of the interest in indigenous responses to these so-called solutions and part of that is Uh, preparing for the aftermath of so-called a a natural disaster. Um, Even that that language, natural disaster, in my language, doesn't exist. And maybe this is so far away from how we really need to look, because if we are saying this is how it's going to be in the future, then I think that line of, as I as I said earlier, the front lines that native people are are on. Actually, now there is no such thing because everybody is going to be on the front lines because of the climate change, the climate climate crisis. This is a better time to even try to come together with all of our adaptations, rather than just trying to um, adapt Earth to our needs. We need to we need we need to stop adapting Earth to our needs. And adapt her needs to the way we live, so to speak. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, we need to listen, and we need to learn. And that's non-indigenous people like myself. We need to be listening and learning from indigenous people, and we need to all listen and learn to the earth. And the, I mean, science is helping us. Science is giving us those statistics about you know, with, you know, one degree hotter in the next ten years means the end of X Y Z community and land. She's giving us pretty loud and clear messages. It's time. Yeah. It's time, to, it's time, whether through scientific channels or through indigenous ways of reading country, we know she's really suffering, and we know that it's time to listen and act. But the 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 the, the level of response is not proportionate to the level of crisis. Certainly yes. not here in Australia. And so oh, we wow. know through our, we know through our project that the um there's a disproportionate um that basically natural hazards, um, cyclones, fires, floods, we know that they're happening worse, we know they're happening more frequently and and that they're more severe. And we also know, and I think everyone probably knows this by now, that they compound pre-existing disadvantage. So if you're poor or you're displaced, you're more likely to be living in a place where those hazards will hit and you're more likely to be hit harder and it's harder to bounce back. You know, you might not have insurance, you might not have another place to go, you might not have a car to get out in that moment, all those things. So our project's focusing on that idea, but specifically its relationship with Indigenous peoples. And I think one thing that I haven't mentioned so far is the the way that um, emergency relief in Australia doesn't necessarily take into advantage the extraordinary grief and cultural trauma of a fire or a flood. So we know that there are these interpersonal interactions between you know, emergency relief personnel and Indigenous people, and we know that race, uh, sorry, race, uh, racism is often at play. So we heard a story where, you know, a cop said to this um, Indigenous community, oh, get in a car drive to this place, you know, a, a community an hour or two away, um, stay and just spend the night at that hotel because they were being evacuated because of fire. When they got there, a local redneck is running that hotel and says, sorry, no, insert racist word here, I don't take you guys as guests. So even in these events, you have this, you know, people, they're not, you know, racist um, hotel owners or cops or whatever are saying, no, we know another story of an Indigenous community being told to go to the town hall as a safety place. And again, a racist um, uh, working for an aid organisation said, you guys aren't allowed in here. You mm-hmm. know, so these terrible stories of racist interpersonal kind of interaction interactions in those moments. Yeah. But there's also just this incredible ignorance about, what it is to to lose to lose land to lose trees to lose animals to what this violence towards country means for indigenous people. Um, yeah. because my lot we don't get it we've, we've come and we've built these stupid buildings and we've been, you know driving our big trucks we don't understand in our way of being what this disrespect means and what it feels like to those to indigenous peoples who are connected you know who who the trees are a family member to. And so, yeah, there's this. I think in a lot of ways that that cultural trauma and that grief of the natural hazard, particularly because these natural hazards are in large part climate crisis created, or at least climate crisis intensified, have you know we're not aware of that, or we're not feeling it, and it's definitely not part of our kind of our relief and our planning systems.
2: Yeah, wow. It's such an honor to hear your thoughts and thank you for filling in, so to speak, but I don't think you need to say that. I don't need to say that because I think all of our, our thoughts, our knowledge are important because we as human, the human species, you know, we forgot some things too as Indigenous folks, but also the folks who think they forgot really just need to remember and follow that Indigenous knowledge that's out there in those communities that we kind of marginalized, right? And I think it's it's involving the observation of, of the so-called environment, but of Earth, Mother Earth to a lot of Native peoples in the Western Hemisphere, North and South America. These things are happening as much as they are in Australia. And this is why I want that common research that you come up with. Um, uh, it's a theme amongst what we need to talk about. This consciousness that you bring, Emma, this needs to be out of that container rather than just a load of materials to rebuild. You see? And what we're doing now is is going beyond um the science of it and the experience of indigenous peoples now is much needed. And I thank you for being there um, and being among the thought, the thoughts that are being originated now, because we need to become more than just reactive. We yeah. need to be of influence and really include Native people rather than including them and then putting them in on the, the right corner of our box of inclusion. They need to be in and in no matter how long it takes because earth is not gonna hold up or well, at least we won't hold up if we don't have the protection of those indigenous people's knowledges. Wow, that's a lot of words. And it, but it's an honor, it's an honor. Do you have any last Thoughts that you could maybe give to the folks out there.
3: Yeah, well, I think what you've what you've just said. Um, one of our keynotes that we had come over from Uteroa, or commonly known as New Zealand, um, Associate Professor Denise Kelly. She said, Indigenous people don't just need a voice at the table; they need to be setting the table. And I think that that's in, that's a really elegant way of putting it. We know in this day and age we've got cynical corporate structures that enable, you know, the token Indigenous person or the token woman to be on a board or whatever, and they pat themselves on the back and they say, hashtag diversity or whatever, hashtag inclusion. But um, we know that those voices, one voice is not enough. And it's an immense um, violent pressure against this one person to represent all their people's We don't need emergency personnel just to simply go, you know, to have one token Aboriginal person um, in their local community discussion. They need to change that dynamic. They need to flip it and they need to say, hey, guys, I know you're already running a show. You're doing a great job. How can we help? What do you need from us? You know, it's recognising that leadership that's already there, recognising and honouring that incredible resilience and the fact that people already know their own mob. I don't know what you guys call mob um, over there. Like you put iwi in um, in Uttaroa mob. What do you guys call like your community in in, in
2: US? Um, It depends, really. So oh,
3: okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, and it's just about flipping the flipping the dynamic, and it's not talking down to people. These are incredibly resilient. These are the original custodians yeah. of their land. Yeah. It's yeah. dignity and humility, which we all know is not yeah. the strongest. The police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And saying, Hey guys, um, you're doing a great job. What can we do to support you? Um, and elevating that to that position of um of authority that they've already taken. They're already looking after each other. They're already looking after mm. themselves, you know? Yeah. And um yeah. yeah, so yeah. But yeah, I think that Denise Kelly put it right. It's not a voice at the table, it's about making sure that Indigenous people are setting the table.
2: Mm, thank you so much for that. Those good thoughts. And um, it's very nice to hear you all the way in Australia and um what part of Australia are you speaking from
3: I'm in Nam um or Melbourne so in the south um I'm on Boonarong country so I'm down on um uh, I live on the bay um so near the ocean but it's a pretty uh I still get in the water because I'm a water person but it's but a lot of people that I've, I've come out, I've encountered at work say don't swim in that water <laughs> it's pretty polluted
2: oh, I see yeah <laughs>
3: yeah um, yeah''m I'm, I'm, I'm close it's very urban where I am. you know, it's uh, five kilometers right from the middle of the CBD. Um, this is the central business district, but it's um, yeah, it's, it's there's a lot more greenery. and I've got the ocean. It's a pretty mm. bad ocean, but there's there's water. I think I think from the I've been to America but not to l a, but it kind of looks a little bit like the beach in some of the parts of LA i a. I've seen where there's yeah. a little bit of stuff washed up sometimes.
2: but but thank you so much for for being here. and um maybe we'll talk again in the future, but. For uh, responding to the call that uh, we need to hear these voices of how we are coming together, with the design that we need to come together with, is all the voices, including and, and not marginalizing Indigenous peoples no longer. But thank you for adding that and your enthusiasm. Big thanks, Emma, for being here. Oh, uh,
3: it's been it's been so nice to, to, talking to you, Tiokasen. Thanks for having me. Um, and for letting me talk about this project that was originally founded um, and, and is led by my Aboriginal colleague Biami Williamson, um, it's really great to. We know that there's a burgeoning um, international movement regarding the need for um, recognizing pre-existing Indigenous leadership in disaster resilience. So it's really cool to um, cross the ocean. I don't know. I don't know how internet works, but let's say we are yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. have, and have this have this chat. So thanks yes. for having me.
2: That was Dr. Emma McNichol, a feminist philosopher and works at the Nexus of Race, Culture and Gender Theory, examining themes of exclusion and intersectionality in history in historical and contemporary feminist theory. Emma is a Senior Project Coordinator of Fire to Flourishes, National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Program, a project exploring Indigenous leadership in the face of natural hazards intensified by the climate crisis. And Emma spoke to us from Melbourne, Australia to bring attention to the bias, the dismissing, and the complete lack of recognizing Indigenous knowledge before, during, and after so-called natural disasters. We'll be right back. This is First Voices Radio. My name is Teoksin Ghost Source. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh. But I'm on the floor, come rescue. Just another day